listening to Open Mic Friday on this April the, what is it? It's April the 3rd in the year of our Lord 2020. And it's not really an Open Mic Friday. We're not in the studio, so I'm not going to be taking questions, but I don't need to because I have emails, letters, phone calls that come in and we're going to respond to some of that today on Open Mic Friday. I'm Pastor Tom Baker. So if you have a question, we're not on next Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. So it'll be a week after that we have the open mic again. But you can still write me an email at lawandgospel at lawandgospel101.com. By the way, we're going to be having a new email pretty soon and a new website. We're going to be doing some things with that. We're going to let you know uh, about that. And at this time, what we're going to do is respond to a question that we had. Uh, The first question was about this curtain that was torn in the temple when Jesus died on the cross. That's a very, very important item. It has a lot of significance to it, and it's uh, mentioned in the Gospels. This was a veil. It was long. It was purple, scarlet, and blue, and particularly, it separated not people from the temple proper, but from the Holy of Holies. It was said to be about 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. The veil was so massive and heavy, it took 300 priests to manipulate it because it was moved into the temple. It was created in the temple, etc. It was no, not able to be torn by one individual and it would take more than human strength to tear it. In fact, the priest said it would take more than two horses to tear the temple, pulling at each end. It had to be done by God alone, and that's the point. Now, Why was it so important? Well, it separated God from the people. And a a lot of times that separation was to show because we are not holy enough to enter into the presence of God. In fact, You can hear about that in many verses in the Bible. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. I mean, that's right out of the Bible. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But what was the significance then of the tearing of the temple? Well, it shows that God was the one 
that caused the veil to be torn. He is the initiator of the veil being rent. Now, I've heard a lot of people have this interpretation, that what this means is that we are now able to go into the Holy of Holies to see God. I do not agree with that. I believe it's the opposite, that God comes out of the Holy of Holies. He leaves the temple. Well, where's his new temple? Well, there are a number of verses to help us there. In the book of Hebrews, it's clear that Jesus is the temple of God. And what does Jesus do? He enters into you when you are saved through faith. Baptism is clearly taught that two gifts you receive, the gift of the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, who brings with Jesus, with him, Jesus. So Jesus is within you. Now, why is that significant? Because nobody, according to the Bible, goes to heaven apart from being righteous. But every other religion in the world, when it talks about righteousness, it talks about your obedience, your good works to God. Well, nobody can do any good works to God. Just read the first few chapters of Romans, and not only Gentiles, but also Jews fall far short of the glory of God in being perfectly obedient. Even after you are saved, you are still a sinner. You still continue to do sins of commission and sins of omission. Then how can you go to heaven? Because what God does, and we mentioned this number of times, is he has his righteousness given to you. Martin Luther spoke of it as a glorious exchange. At baptism, God takes your sins, places them on the shoulders of Jesus, and that occurred at the crucifixion when Jesus died for the sins of the world, not just for the sins of believers, as Calvin taught, but the sins of the world, so that forgiveness is available to everyone who trusts in Jesus as their Savior. So when do you become righteous? I indicated to the questioner that if she was not righteous today, she could not take the Lord's Supper because the Holy Spirit will not enter into a body nor will the body and blood of Jesus Christ is not good for those who are not righteous in God's sight. Right now, if you're taking the Lord's Supper, that means the pastor considers you to be righteous in the sight of God because of the confession of your sins and your 
faith. So the temple, yes, that veil tore, which separated God from man. But I think one of the best ways uh, to put that is Jesus' sacrifice meant that the separation between God and man was able to be removed. Now, I, as I said, don't agree with those who say it's removed because now anyone could go into the Holy of Holies. No, it's because the Holy of Holies, God's presence, left it and now comes to us. In fact, this is not the first time this happened. At the Babylonian captivity, it's clear from the Old Testament that God left the temple when the temple was about to be destroyed by the Babylonians and his spirit went up on the mountain. And then when the people were able to return, oh, many years later to rebuild the temple, God returned to the Holy of Holies. But where's the Holy of Holies today? You don't have to go to Israel. There is no temple. There's a wall left. But where the Holy of Holies is, is in divine worship. I'm the pastor, perhaps preaching, etc. But that Holy of Holies is Jesus. He's the temple. We're part of the body of Christ, but he's the head. So wherever the head is, so also is the body. So it's very important to understand, I believe, the correctness about the temple tearing. It was really a horrible, horrible thing from the point of view of the Jews in that day. Now on the temple were cherubim, and a a kind of pictures of the universe. And the Bible even talks about that that was to be torn asunder in the Old Testament. It was significant. So it tore apart at the point of Jesus' death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then the wonderful words, it is finished. That's really important. So the holy place, which was the most holy place, only there were a few who could go into it. And that was the high priest on the day of atonement to pray and sacrifice for the sins of the people. At times, people who enter the Holy of Holies were put to death. They just died from glory fire. And that's really important because they did not have permission from God to go into that Holy of Holies. So I hope that helps to understand that you are not only able to come into the presence of God in a church service, 
to go to the altar to receive the body and blood or bring your children to baptism, but more importantly, that you are righteous from God's point of view because you have received the righteousness of Christ. All right. Another letter that came to me is talking about this distinction I made between historic faith and saving faith. Uh, A lot of people, when they say we need to prove the Bible is true, what they end up doing is proving the history of the Bible, or at least giving some evidence. I, I just saw there's a, I guess it's a seminary, it's not Lutheran, but they have courses in apologetics. And the last one I read about was proving that the resurrection took place. Well, what good is that? That people now, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Guess who also knows that? The unbelieving Pharisees knew that. They had paid the soldiers to lie about it, that the disciples of Jesus had taken his body. They knew he had risen from the dead just as much as he had risen Lazarus from the dead. They didn't doubt that resurrection, but they said it was because of Beelzebub, the devil, that he was able to do that work. So what's the difference between historic faith and saving faith? Historic faith is really believing that something is true. So the Pharisees had historic faith in the Old Testament. They believed that Adam and Eve were created in six 24-hour days. Nobody doubted that. They believed that there was a worldwide flood. They believed that David existed that Solomon existed, that the prophets existed. They didn't need any evidence. They had the Bible. Yet Jesus looks at them and says, your father is the devil. How could he do that? Well, there is a verse in the Bible, and the writer brings it up. It's James 2.19. James is talking to the congregation. You believe that God is one, you do well. Now, the word believe there is the word pestio, which is referring to the faith and can be used for the faith of a Christian. We believe that God is one. Now, we know something more than that, that he's three persons and he's one. We're not sure Adam and Eve knew that that well, even though the three persons are all mentioned in the first three chapters of the Bible. But at any rate, God is one, only one God. But listen to the next point. Even the demons, and the word for demon, which is dihamonion, refers to the devils. Even they believe and shudder. 
And guess what? It's the same word, believe. We believe that God is one, you do well. Now, I, I want to be real clear here. To believe that God is one doesn't save anybody. Many religions believe there's only one God, like Muslims. There's no other God but Allah. Muhammad isn't God. He's a messenger. We believe that Yahweh, the Father, is God, and Jesus, the messenger, is also God and the Holy Spirit. But if you were asked, do we believe that there's only one God? The answer is yes. But the demons also believe that there's one God. And what's the word after that? And they shudder. They tremble. In other words, the Greek word there they have extreme fear. They're horrified. Why? Because they know that God has prepared hell for them, and there's no way of salvation. Their only hope was that through the devil, their head, and themselves, they could have gotten Jesus to sin. Because had he sinned even once, then your sins would not have been forgiven, for he would have died on the cross for his own sin. So, the letter writer is trying to make the point that the historic faith is still very important. And he indicates that, well, why do we confess in the creed the historic faith? What's he talking about? Well, listen to the Apostles' Creed. Conceived by the Virgin, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That sounds like historic faith. So why are we confessing historic faith if we don't believe it's saving faith. Well, I'll tell you this. I never can talk about Jesus suffering on the cross or dying for me without saving faith coming to the forefront. Because the question is, what's the implication of Jesus' death on the cross? So when I confess that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, my mind immediately thinks that that was as a substitute for me. I, I can't think of historic faith without thinking of saving faith, even with Abraham. Abraham is told that his old wife, Sarah, is going to have a baby. Well, every time I think of that, I also think, he believed it, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, there the word believe is also the word for just knowing something is certain. Like, for example, your parents could tell you, if you're a child, uh, we're going to McDonald's tomorrow. Well, you don't doubt that. You believe it. But it doesn't make you a child of those parents. 
what made you a child of those parents was being born or adopted into the family. And therefore, you trust your parents. That's the main difference between historic faith, which just believes, yeah, it happened, and saving faith, where you believe the promises connected to the happenings, and it happened for me. And the best example is James 2.19, where yes, believers believe God is one. That's well, that's good. Uh, the word for well there is kalos, which means that's excellent. That's rightly said. But then the, dem the, the demons believe, but they shudder for fear because they have no faith that they are going to be saved. The other verse that the letter br uh, writer brought up was 1 Thessalonians, and that was chapter 2, verse 13. Let me read that for you. And you, Paul's writing, I'm sorry, I am looking at Colossians. And you is in Colossians. But First Thessalonians says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which has at work in you believers. Now, it's interesting to note that the ESV says, when you received the word of God, you accepted it. I like the word receive because to accept something means you make a decision. And to accept it, that occurred when you received the word of God by the Holy Spirit, and you made a decision through faith. This is not the word of men. It is the word of God. The ending point is important, which is at work in you who believe. And guess what? The word believe there is the same word used by James to talk about the devil's believing. But in the context of James 2.19, it's clear that they only believe the history of the Bible. Now, it's really important to teach the history, and there may be some evidence outside the Bible. I, I personally don't really look at that because the Bible is sufficient. And through faith, what you now believe as true you now begin to trust through the promises connected. So yes, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross, but so do unbelievers. They, they believe that historic fact. It's even part of some religions. But they don't believe that he was your substitute. They don't believe the promises that your sins were forgiven connected to that death. And so when you're teaching children, 
confirmation, adult instruction, talking to your neighbor. Just don't talk about the history of the Bible, but give them the importance of that history. Just don't talk about, yes, the curtain was torn in two, and that was a miracle, because even two horses couldn't pull it apart. Don't stop there. Say, and that means that God left the Holy of Holies, and your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit, which means that not only have your sins been forgiven, but in God's sight, you are righteous. And similarly, as we move into next week, even though we won't be here Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, you can hear the wonderful good news of Monday, Thursday, the Good Friday experience, and Easter by talking about the promises connected to those events that you believe really occurred. The promises of Monday, Thursday is you receive the true body and blood of Christ. The promises of Good Friday is your sins have been forgiven. The work is finished. And the promises of Easter Sunday is that he has risen from the dead. And that means that you too will be risen from the grave that you will be going into unless the day of judgment occurs. So thanks again. Keep sending the letters. And in two weeks, we'll do another Open Mic Friday. Until then, I'm Tom Baker. Listen God to bless. Gospel each weekday morning at 930 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.